0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. My name is Tevi Troy. Each week we look at a different book in the public policy sphere and talk about its relevance to the current public policy debates we have in this country. This week, we're talking to Eric Weiner, the author of Man Seeks God, My Flirtations with the Divine. Eric calls himself a Confusionist, says he's not really linked to any one religion. And he goes around the world in quest of different religious faiths to find out what attracts people to religion and what makes them believers. It's a very funny book. I hope you read it and enjoy it, but I also hope you listen to and enjoy the upcoming interview. Hello, Eric Weiner, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Thanks. It's a
1: pleasure to be here.
0: We're glad to have you on today, and we'd love to talk about your book, Man Seeks God. But first, I'd like to ask you what we traditionally start off with, which is, who are you and how did you come to write this book?
1: Ooh, those are not easy questions to answer. I am a recovering journalist uh and an author and a gastronomical Jew uh at least that's the way I was brought up we were we were all about the bagels and lox and gefilte fish and and much less about the Judaism and the spirituality and the rituals that part of Judaism so so that's how I grew up and then A few years ago, I found myself uh, in the emergency room of a hospital uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. I was in pain and I was scared. There was something wrong with me. I didn't know exactly what, but I was assuming the worst. Uh, The doctors performed some tests. They did some CT scans and x-rays and declared that there was something, quote-unquote, funky on my CT scan, never a good sign, and so now I'm really worried. And a nurse walks in to draw blood or something, and and she must have picked up on my fear because it was pretty obvious. And she leans over and she whispers in my ear the following words, have you found your God yet? And that really kind of sent me over the edge psychologically because now I'm convinced that there is something terribly wrong with me and that I will soon be meeting my maker However, she had it in mind. And long story short, uh, there was nothing that terribly wrong with me. I was not dying, at least not as quickly as I had feared, just in the way that we're all dying. And you know, went back to my normal secular, gastronomical, Jewish life um, for a while. But that question kept coming back to me. It haunted me, really. Have you found your God yet? And those were her exact words, Tebby. They they weren't, have you found God, or a God, or the God. It was, have you found your God, as if there was just one out there waiting for me. So that sort of propelled me on this literally worldwide search quest uh, to answer her question as honestly as I could.
0: How many different countries did you visit during the course of this quest? Uh, I
1: went to... Five or six different countries, plus Las Vegas, uh, which may count as its own independent city-state in some ways. Uh, I was I was in uh, Israel and China and Turkey and Nepal uh, and a few places in the U.S. as well.
0: You, you said you call yourself a gastronomical Jew, which is a, an interesting and amusing term. But you also have another word that you use to describe yourself, a, a Confusionist. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: this is uh this is an invented word because when I sat down to sort of embark on this this choice really, and that's what it was, a choice of a religion to follow, um, I was confronted with the question of well, what am I other than being sort of culturally Jewish, really? What what are my religious beliefs? And none of the labels seem to fit. You know, uh atheists, well, you know, I have serious doubts about the existence of God, but atheists are pretty certain. In fact, they are certain that God does not exist, and I'm not that certain about anything. I'm not certain about what I should have for breakfast every morning. How can I be so certain that God does not exist? So I scratched atheist and moved on to agnostic, which at first seemed to fit better. And agnostic uh, literally means one without knowledge, and that certainly described me when it came, comes to matters of faith. But the thing is, agnostics don't know whether God exists, and they don't particularly care, it seems. There's something passive about agnosticism. They're sort of waiting. They're in receiving mode, you know, just waiting for that evidence of God's existence or the divine or whatever to come to them. And I I wanted to be more active than that. I wanted to do things actively. And to be perfectly honest here, uh, I was sort of more hopeful, I think, than the average agnostic. I I deeply hope that not only that God exists, but that a sort of divine realm exists, uh, because I've always suspected, despite my deeply cerebral and rationalistic tendencies, I've always suspected that there is more to this world than meets the eye. So I I came up with this term, half joking, half serious, of a confusionist, uh, someone who is deeply and profoundly confused about matters of faith, but who also believes or I would say hopes that, that there is more out there. And I have since learned, by the way, that others in this sort of you know grappling for terms that fit have come up with things such as a, a possibilian, That's another term, or there's a movement I just learned this afternoon that's gaining steam in the Netherlands called somethingism. The belief that there is
0: something out there. Just and what is the something? Yeah, that that is the question,
1: um, and I think that's the question that all of us, all of us face. But you know, it kind of comes down to the term mystery, right? You know, the way we use that word mystery now is that we think mystery is a problem to be solved, but in the more mythological religious sense of the word, the mystery, the great mystery, something to revel in, something to be awed by and not necessarily something that needs to be solved. And so when you say, you know, what is that something? I don't know. Um, But I think we have to learn to live with that. I don't know. And to live with that doubt, because if there's anything I've learned uh, in this this journey, it's that doubt and faith are not incompatible as we normally think. I've met many people, and I've come to believe myself, that one can be a deeply spiritual, a deeply religious person, and still be filled with all kinds of doubt, and that's okay.
0: I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your upbringing. You have a humorous way of describing it, where you say uh, Hebrew school is less relevant than breakfast to you. A lot of your cool. jokes have to do with food. I noticed. Uh, maybe yeah, that's you, part you, of you why you are the a there. What,
1: I, I, I seem to be obsessed with it. In fact, I'm getting hungry just in this discussion. You know, my appetite's kicking in. Anyway, go ahead.
0: So, why did it not appeal to you? Why was it less relevant to you than breakfast? Did your parents try and impose on you, or did they not care? How did how did that Aspect of it work for you?
1: I was—I have to be honest—I was bored. It, it didn't seem relevant to my life. Uh, learning a foreign language, Hebrew, that that I wasn't hearing every day. That couldn't help me make new friends or do anything in my everyday life. Uh, or learning about these people from thousands of years ago who weren't even smart enough to come up with indoor plumbing, you know, let alone the iPhone. So. My thinking, and again, as an eight-year-old, basically was, well, what can they possibly have to teach me? And and also, I think I was exposed to this this kind of rule-based Judaism and this very cerebral Judaism that I think a lot of people of my generation were exposed to. That that really focuses on these set of rules, you know, the mitzvot that one is to follow. It doesn't really explain why. It just seemed kind of both oppressive and somewhat trivial at the same time. Um, and I realize fully, and I can hear people listening to this saying, well, that, that's not really Judaism. That's not what Judaism is really about. And that may be true, but it is the Judaism that, that I was exposed to, or at least that I extracted from those, those Hebrew school lessons.
0: So you went on this quest to find religion elsewhere. And one of the stories you tell is you go to India and you see this religious ritual of people dunking themselves in the Ganges, which you say is healthy if the dysentery could be avoided. Uh, So it it seems like humor is a frequent defense mechanism against, uh, I guess, uh, accepting some of the rituals or or, um, too much belief in the rituals.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know defense mechanism – to some extent, in that period, you know, I fully acknowledge that one can use use humor to shield oneself from having a genuine insight or spiritual moment. But at the same time, humor can be used to convey honesty, and that was honestly how I saw that ritual. You know, people are dunking themselves in the Ganges River, which is hugely polluted, and doing it for their health, their mental and and spiritual health. So to me, it seemed odd. And, and look, you know, I met a a Sufi early on in my travels and he said to me something that I did not understand at the time. He said, you can't be any wiser than you are. And I think that's true. I realize that now that, you know, if, if this looks odd to me, um, I don't do anyone, including myself any great service by pretending that oh I get it. Oh, I really understand what this ritual is about. I, I didn't at the time, and I think it's okay to say so in in a humorous way. Well well why not? Where is it written that God and humor don't mix? In fact I think they mix quite well.
0: Oh, I mean look at all the Jewish comedians, right? <laughs> all the Jew I beg your pardon? Look at all the Jewish comedians that have been around. Oh yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, we definitely um, use Jackie things. Mason and uh, we could go on and Allen, on and, and, Mel Brooks, and et um and yeah, and, and not just, you know, making fun of religion um, necessarily, but having fun with religion. You know, G.K. Chesterton, the the British writer, uh, said the test of a good religion is whether one can make fun of it. And there's something to that, because the people I met who were really deeply religious, whether they were Franciscan friars or Kabbalists in Israel, they they, they took their religion seriously. They didn't take themselves too seriously, and they were willing to have some fun with it, that sense of play, which is really at its best a kind of prayer when we're really in deep play. So so yeah, it really it depends on the kind of humor. Is it mean-spirited, or is it meant to lighten things up and maybe to illuminate the questions at hand?
0: I certainly found it lighthearted and amusing, and, and it's, it's a, one of the selling points of the book. Uh, but there is one thing that you t- that you're pretty serious about. If there's one serious and recurring thing, it's uh, it's William James, the uh, yes. H- Harvard philosophy uh, philosopher of uh, late right. 19th, early 20th century. Can you talk a little bit about him and why he's important to the book?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of William James. Now, here here is a man who lived in the shadow of his more famous novelist brother, Henry James. Uh, here is a man who was. You know, very cerebral, very rational, a philosopher, went to Harvard, actually went to medical school at Harvard as well. Um, but was, became profoundly interested at some point in his life in religious experience. And of course, his most famous book, his classic is The Varieties of Religious Experience. And I thought, well, that's just a very interesting title. Not the varieties of religion or religious rituals or religious theology, but religious experience. So that's what he was interested in. And if you read this book, you'll see that he's interested in the, these mystical experiences and, and what people go through, what they get out of it. But the thing about James is that he, you know, as I read in my book, he very much reminded me of uh, a, a traveler, someone with deep wonderlust, but who couldn't travel for whatever reason and had to rely on these secondhand accounts through books. And by that I mean I, I suspect and I think it's pretty clear he envied these people who were able to have these mystical experiences and he admired them really. You know, he had a dog in the hunt and and yet for whatever reason he, he couldn't pray. He said he felt silly. Um and he also uh suffered from depression throughout his life, as I have, and so I could relate to him in that way. So yeah, he he was one of my, my guides, if you will, during this journey.
0: Uh, you also, uh, you know, in some of your travels abroad, you had some amusing experiences where you're looking for the uh, the great sage in Tibet named Wayne, and you ask what part of Tibet he's from, and you're told Staten Island. <laughs> yeah, I was looking
1: for a llama. I was looking for a Tibetan llama in Kathmandu, thinking, you know, I needed to go to the source and I needed to find uh, a real genuine teacher. I was very hung up on that. And I couldn't find any. Everyone kept saying, you know, they've they have heard their in California or Colorado, suggesting I had flown in the wrong direction. Uh, and finally, someone, as you say, suggested Wayne, uh, who turns out was from Staten Island, uh, but has been living in uh, Kathmandu for 30 years, is practically a local in that sense. And is also a practicing and very accomplished Buddhist and meditator. So I did agree to, to study with me, with Wayne.
0: Was Wayne uh, Jewish by birth? It was because there's that, that whole trend of the juboos, the, the Jews who embrace the Buddhism. Jew-boos,
1: also, uh, the Juboos, also the Jufis. Have you heard about the Jufis? Yeah, or of Sufi Jews, you know? And hindu Jews is another one I just right. picked up the other way the other day. Uh, I have to say, in my journeys, because I, I always would sort of latch on to these converts and disaffected souls, and I ran into two groups: Jews and Catholics. Um, those were the largest groups of seekers that I encountered out there.
0: Um you you also have that line in there that uh, Buddhism is Hinduism stripped for export. So I guess uh Jubuism is Hinduism stripped for export. Yeah, I like that.
1: I mean, I guess that that's actually I have to give credit to the great Alan Watts for that one. Uh and uh he he was right. I think mean, Buddhism is is much more pared down. Um I do not write about Hinduism directly in this book. It's not one of the chapters and I wrestled with that. Uh, I was frankly overwhelmed by it, you know, 330 million deities at last count, um, complex the mythology. Well, Buddhism, uh, there's very little mythology, if any, and there's actually in a way very little theology, at least not in the Judeo-Christian sense. It's uh, Buddhism is more like a doctor's prescription. You know, the Buddha diagnosed the human condition, always suffering. Uh, he found uh, a cause for this condition, and that is essentially desire and our fixation on desire. And he wrote out a little Rx prescription for it, which is essentially the Noble Eightfold Path, which involves meditation and a variety of other spiritual practices. And so it's much more clean cut and and direct that way. And I think that's one reason why even atheists uh, have grudging and sometimes more than grudging respect for Buddhism.
0: I like how you bring religions alive through various characters who embrace the religions or symbols of the religion. You talk about the guy, and I'm going to butcher his pronunciation, and I ask for your correction. Is uh, the Rinpoche? Is that how you pronounce it? Oh, that's
1: pretty darn good. The Rinpoche. Yes.
0: And how he—that's
1: me- a, a title, actually, the Rinpoche.
0: And how I'm he meets—he meets Cher, and, and she expects some spiritual wisdom from him, and he tells her that she looks like a bag of bones, which I can't imagine went over very well.
1: No, it did not go well. And so this guy intimidated me. I mean, here's a man who stared down uh, both, you know, the evil goddess Maya, the goddess of delusion, and also Cher. Um, So, yeah, he has a a bit of a following there in uh, in Kathmandu, uh, particularly among Westerners.
0: Yeah, but he didn't like your experiment, right? He disapproved of shopping for God
1: yeah that was that was my sort of working title for the book at the time uh shopping for God, and that's the way I sort of explained it and I sit down with him and uh and you know I only have a couple of minutes I'm very nervous and and my friend James introduces me and says, This is Eric he's on this expedition he's shopping for god and I could immediately tell by the sour look on the Rinpoche's face that he, he didn't approve. And so I thought the problem was this shopping metaphor was too gimmicky for him. So I said, no, it's it's not really shopping. It's seeking. I'm seeking God. And He still said, no, it's it's a bit limited, he said. I said, "Well, well, no, I mean, I'm not being limited. I'm going to Turkey and Israel and China. I'm going everywhere. And then it dawned on me the limited part for him was not. The shopping part. It was the God part. Um, He found God a bit limited because, of course, Buddhists don't believe in a God, at least not in a, in the way we think of it as a, you know, omniscient, omnipresent being, uh, or divine being. Uh, So, yeah, I thought that was very telling. Leave it to a Tibetan Lama to, to suggest that uh, a book that seeks God is a bit limited.
0: Yeah, well, I actually was at your book party a few weeks ago, and I met a fellow named Matteo, who seemed like a very nice guy, uh, well-read, uh, thoughtful guy. Um, and you in the book describe him as, uh, I guess, the James Bond of Buddhism or something like that. And how, how James close.
1: Bond of Tibetan Buddhism? Right. Yeah, he's
0: always because he's very much
1: involved in the human rights aspect of the Tibetans as well, and he's he's always smuggling out film and in, in the soles of his shoes and, and doing all these. Slightly dangerous things, um, but he's an—he's an impressive person, Mateo.
0: Yeah, he—he he didn't strike me as somebody would be carrying a Walther PPK like Bond does. But uh, why did he? Really, why did he? <laughs> well, because the,
1: it, like... it is—he is a Buddhist at heart, too. <laughs> so, you
0: know. and he has this experiment—the bicycle experiment. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, we're sitting in a in a little cafe uh, in Kathmandu, uh, and he says to me, and this is because I, I'm wrestling—I'm wrestling with these Buddhist con- concepts of of non-existence, that nothing really exists, at least not the way we think of it. And this this was actually causing some uh, anxiety on my part. Nothing exists, and maybe even I don't exist, and I was kind of freaking out. So I asked Mateo about it, and he said, well, you see that bicycle over there? Bicycle parked sort of just on the edge of the cafe. I said, yes. Uh, he said, well, go over and touch it. And I went over and I touched the bicycle bicycle seat, I suppose, uh, and he said, no, you, you touched the seat, you didn't touch the bicycle. So I went over and I touched the wheel. He's like, no, no, you touched the wheel. That's not the bicycle. Please touch the bicycle. I touched the frame of the bike. He said, no, you touched the middle tube. Please touch the bicycle. And of course, the point he was trying to make and which he made quite effectively is that the bicycle does not really exist except as an abstract concept in our mind. You know, it's. You know, it's like that old parable about the five blind men and the elephant, and they're all holding a different part of the elephant, touching it, and one touches the trunk and says, oh, it's, you know, it's a cylinder, it's this thing. Another touches the the leg of an elephant and says, you know, it's a tree trunk. And, of course, they were all right, but they were all wrong. Nobody was seeing the, the big picture.
0: It also reminds me a little bit of the college teacher I had who described to me the Socratic Method as this guy Socrates who's asking all these questions about first premises and first premises and first premises until everybody else says, go away Socrates, we don't want to talk to you anymore. So it,
1: Yeah, the, the, there's you get frustrated and I had that with that experience with Wayne too when he would say these apparently contradictory things like I would ask him, Wayne, well what's the first step in meditation? And he would just Look at me and say, first steps are often last steps." And, and at one point, he suggested I needed to be thrown back against my own experience, which struck me not only as a bit obtuse but possibly violent as well. And 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 thing. And this is, you know, this is common to so many religions, especially the Eastern ones, Buddhism and particularly Taoism. These apparently contradictory statements um, that appear mutually exclusive. But the Buddhists and the Taoists don't see it it that way. It can be up and down and hot and cold at the same
0: time. Yeah, is is that some kind of – is it really philosophical or is it some kind of verbal trickery that they learned somewhere in in, in monk school or whatever uh, about how to manipulate your words to make these apparent contradictions come to life?
1: Well, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Are you suggesting that it's verbal trickery and that it doesn't represent a, a reality? Um, if that's the case, I'll disagree. Uh, I think maybe we are the ones in the West who are engaged in verbal trickery by believing as we do that things are either or and cannot possibly be both. Um, I think they only engage in verbal trickery in a sort of Zen Cohen sort of way to try to trick us into seeing things more clearly. It's that, you know, whack upside the head. So, no, I, I absolutely do not think it's. Verbal trickery. I think it's it's meant to try to illuminate some truth and to get us to think about things in a less binary way that we've come to view things in the West.
0: But but do you think they learn from whoever taught them beforehand that when you're given A, you can say B to make it seem like A is not really B, or or uh, to, to play these kind of tricks, like you said, well, you can start from first premises. Uh, I mean, it seems be an aspect of the teaching.
1: Well, I think the aspect of the teaching is to yeah, to get to 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 talk about things in different ways. And I suppose just like any religion, there are Buddhist monks who go through the, just go through the motions and parrot back these these little aphorisms or way of look, ways of looking at things. But I've met Buddhists who I think who I think really get it. Really get the the fact that well, we're in Taoism the concept of yin yang, the complementary polar opposites that are not only opposites but interdependent on one another so um so no i think i think that like any religion some people like in a synagogue or church are just reading the lines from the bible or the torah and others really get it and it was those people who really get it that i was drawn to throughout this book
0: you made a comment on page 154, at least in the version I have. I don't know if the page has changed uh, from the uncorrected proof to the final, but about um, how how you're, you're pro-choice and you don't know anyone who is pro-life or you've never met anyone who's pro-life. And that kind of jumped out at me. I mean, your background, I know you're a New York Times reporter and an NPR reporter. Is that sort of typical of people in that milieu? Yes,
1: absolutely. East Coast, the Sella Corridor, um, I have... Never met anyone in my life who has expressed to me that they are pro life. Um, Maybe they were and they didn't tell me. Um, But, you know, this is, I think, one of the problems with just hanging out with your own kind, so to speak, is you're not exposed to other points of view. Um, So, yeah, that statement was an accurate
0: one. It's like that famous line, I believe, Pauline Kael in 1972 after Nixon's landslide victory, who said, I don't know a single person who voted for him. How could he have won? (laughs) Exactly.
1: It's exactly like that. Um, But I I, I really approach this with an open mind. And I think, um, not to pat myself on the back, but I think I'm pretty good at approaching points of view very different from mine, and being open to the possibility that they might be right, or they might be on to something. And see, that's the thing. That those uh, pilgrims on the Ganges dunking in the water, that brackish, dirty water, uh, on the one hand, seems crazy. You might get God knows what kind of disease doing that. On the other hand, they're clearly benefiting, benefiting it from, from it spiritually, just by the way their their is aglow. Um, so both. Maybe true, um it's maybe unhealthy, and they're taking a risk with their physical health, but it's doing an awful lot for them spiritually
0: you know of all the religions you mentioned in the book, I think the one that may be hardest for uh the, your average reader to relate to is the aliens and, and tell me if I'm getting kind of like that pronunciation right, but uh, and they're they're sort of i mean the word alien seems to be apparent when you say it out loud, and they're they're kind of extra- extraterrestrial approach to religion. They're out there, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and at one point you even, I guess, are polite and say they're aliens, deluded or not, uh, leaving it up to the reader to decide. But can you talk a little bit about their approach and how you Yeah, well, in short,
1: their creation myth, every religion has a creation myth, and theirs is that we humans were created not by God, but by an alien race called the Elohim, uh, and that this was, they were created essentially in the laboratory 15, no, 25,000 years ago, and we were created for one purpose, essentially to have as much pleasure as possible. Um, and I say deluded or not, because when it comes to, let's say, the creation myths of any religion being, be it the virgin birth or anything else, or the burning bush or whatever, um, I think we get overly hung up on whether these myths are true or not. Myths are not supposed to be true, uh, not in a scientific sense. They're supposed to be true in that they have something to teach us. And I also think that, okay, I'll be perfectly upfront here. I find it highly unlikely that the Raelians are correct, and that's how we came to be on this planet. But does that mean they absolutely have nothing to say then, nothing to, of value for their followers? No, I don't think it says that
0: at all. I, I was really going out on a limb that they, they may not be accurate, but, uh, but I appreciate that. that that's bold. Um, the, uh, you, we talked a little bit earlier about the uh, your Jewish experience and how that's what you grew up with. But you also examine Judaism as a religion by going to Safat and, and go to Israel and talking about uh, Kabbalah. Uh, And and there's one person you talk to, and you ask to sum up Judaism in one word, and you say rules. Right. Is is that kind of what turned you off to it when you were in high school?
1: Yes, it is. This idea that you follow the rules, you don't question the rules, um, and that the rules might be very ancient and may have made sense 5,000 years ago, uh, but don't seem relevant to me today. And so my friend just articulated what... I had always felt, and I wanted to get away from that because I sensed that, I hoped that there was another kind of Judaism out there, a Judaism of the heart, and and that's what I pursued in Svat in Israel.
0: There was one passage in the book that I just read out loud to my wife after reading it about how this one woman who is not at all religious, but she was born Jewish, she's a secular woman, I guess she was from Venezuela, and she stops in Brooklyn to see uh, the the Rebbe or uh, Rebbe Schneerson uh, of the Lubavitch group and she had no intention of meeting with him she was going with him on a uh, she was going on a lark to I guess uh, for her cousin and he her his eyes just grabbed her and she went and entered religious school and then you say eight years later she now has kids a wig and sits behind a partition
1: uh, yes.
0: Can you talk a little bit about her and what you found uh, when you talk when you're talking to her? Well,
1: here is this dramatic transformation of um what I suppose is is known in Hebrew as a valchuva, right? Someone who's returned to their faith and it's considered a very important thing and a valchuva is in my understanding considered more noble, if you will, uh than someone who just inherited their faith and continued it and stuck with it. Um it, you know, it, it's an amazing story, and it's it's one I've heard in different religions too. That, it, that one charismatic figure, um, Rabbi Schneerson, in this case, uh, was is able with their eyes or voice or their mere presence to convince someone that this is where they should be, that they have found their home. And this woman's life uh, changed dramatically really, because of that one encounter. And look, I'll be honest, I, I wrestled with the chapter on Judaism more than any other chapter, because here I was confronting my own sense of, of guilt, of regret, um, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's a lot easier to write about the Buddhists or even the Raelians, um, because they're the quote-unquote other. It's much harder to write about uh, your own backyard.
0: Yeah, the story it sounded almost like a Jedi mind trick. Right, she, he said she's going to religious school, and she was actually going, I guess, to art school and um, uh, architecture architecture school. school. And then he just by the power of suggestion convinces her to change her plans and go to religion school. What do you think of that? Uh, I've I've never I never met the Rebbe. He died about fifteen years ago. But I heard that he had this very powerful effect on people, and that just seeing looking into his eyes really could uh, change lives.
1: Yeah, and and I met um, a well, a Jewish man who met a spiritual leader who was part of the, the Sikh tradition in India and had a similar effect. And Instead of becoming an Orthodox Jew, he became a Sikh and wears a turban to this day. Uh, and so sometimes it's not the, you know, sometimes it's a book, you know, like St. Augustine famously was told by a child, pick it up and read it it being the Bible, and that transformed his life from one of sin to redemption. And sometimes it can be uh, just attending a ritual of some kind, and sometimes it can be this charismatic spiritual leader that seems to be more important than what spiritual tradition they happen to belong to, Um, and that that will propel someone in an entirely different direction with their religious life.
0: Well, that seems like an appropriate place to close things up. If you wanted one message to be conveyed from the book by somebody who picked it up, let's say a little child told St. Augustine's uh, <laughs> and, uh, descended, uh pick it up and, and read it, what what would be the message that would come out of your book? And, and how would you think that would shape how we Americans approach religion?
1: Um, hmm. Boy, that's a tough question. Um uh, I
0: specialize in those at New Books and Public Policy. So. Yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> We're the easy questions. Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to bring this full circle back to William James um, because he he once said something that has really stuck with me. He said, truth is what works. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, what the heck does that mean? I mean, if I say two plus two equals five, that works for me. That doesn't seem right, but I don't think that's what James meant. I think what he meant is if a religion or spiritual practice works for you, if it makes you a better person, happier, calmer, more compassionate, then it is true in one sense of the word, at least. And I think, you know, we get awfully hung up in this country about matter, about belief. What do you believe? That's what we ask each other. That's what we ask our politicians. Certainly, what are your religious beliefs? We get very hung up on ritual and liturgy and, and conflict. Um, but ultimately, the test of any religion is its results. And if it makes its followers better people in a very everyday sense, and makes them happier, um, then it is true, and it is good. And And I think that Ultimately, that's how I approach religion as a kind of applied philosophy, you know, wisdom, you know, that we can use uh, not when it comes to the next life, if you believe in that, but in this life to get through the day a little bit happier and a little bit wiser than you thought possible.
0: It reminds me of the old Dennis Prager parable about if you had five youths walking towards you um, on a dark street, would you be comforted if you'd known they'd just come from a Bible study? And I guess, yeah, you probably would. So maybe that leads to people, other people.
1: Uh, A Bible study or a Torah study uh, or a mosque, I would say, or a Buddhist temple, yeah, any house of worship. Um, I, I think, look, you know, if you're looking for a book that points out the hypocrisies in religion or the dangers of religion, then you really shouldn't read my book, <laughs> because there's plenty else out there that will do do that that point of view justice.
0: Dawkins. You can talk to uh, Christopher Hitchens, who just passed away.
1: Yeah, Hitchens, Dawkins, you can, you can read those books. Um, I, I purposefully, even as a hard-bitten journalist, set out in this book to look at the best of religion, What, what where where does religion shine? And and I was surprised just how much brightness I found out there.
0: Well, Eric Weiner, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate you coming on New Books in Public Policy, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much.
1: This has been a real a real pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to my interview with Eric Weiner, a journalist and part time comedian who went around the world to talk to different religious folks about What brings them to religion and how religion can have a transformative effect on people's lives. It's a funny book. It's got a mysterious message though about how important religion can be. And I hope you enjoyed the interview. Heavy Troy signing off, and as I say every week, keep reading.